Uh, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. That's going to be the primary text that we'll get to eventually. Uh, we are starting a series uh, today, Corey said this, uh, called Countercultural Convictions. And let me just kind of lay the groundwork for what this is about. We as Christians, uh, being a Christian, kind of always carries with it this sort of other than this. So we are called out ones uh, who are supposed to live in a way that should look different from the prevailing culture or the world around us. Uh, and we are seeing as pastors and leaders, I've talked about this a couple weeks ago, that this is becoming increasingly more and more difficult to be a faithful Christian adhering to the word of God. The world's not becoming more warm to that idea. It's becoming more antagonistic. So how do we, how do, we do that best? How do we maintain to be a faithful witness in this, in this world? And that's what we're going to set up uh, this morning for the rest of our, our series that we're going to wade into. Just a couple of thoughts that I want to give you before we kind of start this morning's message. The topics that we're going to be covering in this series cannot um, be totally exhausted in one 35-minute talk. It's just impossible. So what we are going to provide for you are additional resources and additional opportunities for you to go deeper on some of these topics that we cover throughout the series. So we have a Deeper Dive podcast that's going to launch this week. Um, we also are going to have a gathering called Inside Redemption Live, particularly on the topic of gender. That's going to be at Redemption Tempe on September 21st, and we'll make sure that we get that out to you um, in other formats too so that you have that in front of you. But different pastors and leaders and guys from our theology team are going to be up and kind of speaking on that. Um, and then, of course, our pastoral staff is available to help you with some conversations as we're working through all of this stuff together. And, and lastly, just one last thing on this, we are attempting uh, really to approach all of these topics with a posture of humility and learning and a posture of, of love. And, and they're important topics in our culture. They're important topics in our world. Um, and we want to rightly apply the wisdom of God in the most precise way possible. And we believe that the word of God is infallible and we are uh, tragically aware of that we are not. So we are asking that you would just extend to us grace and patience as we navigate these topics. And my prayer is that you would see our heart for our King Jesus and our heart for people uh, and our heart for our world to come through in these weeks to come. So uh, you're there in Matthew chapter 5. I'm actually going to start in Colossians. So just hold your place there in Matthew 5. We'll put the text up on the screen. Let me read this to you, and this will be kind of our jump off point for our message this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let me pray and just ask God uh, to help us this morning as we wade into this. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, it's our great joy, like we just sang, God, for how great your love is for us. And in fact, God, we love you because you first loved us. And this morning, God, we want to rest in that love. God, I want to um, magnify that love. God, I want people who've never experienced that love to experience your love by the power of your spirit. But God, we need you for that. And we do. We come this morning, God, with, with needs. We, we have people who are wounded who need healing. We have people who are hurting who need comfort. We, God, there are people listening or here in this room, God, who are, are fearful. And God, they need, they need peace. God, God, there are people in this room who are skeptics, who need to know what's true. God, there are people in this room who are enslaved, who need to be set free. God, I don't have the power to do that on my own, but you do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move with freedom? Would you move with power? Would you do what only you can do, God? We, we need you to be able to hear from you. God, I need you to be able to hear from you. I want to invite you, if you're listening or if you're in the room, that you would just pray a very simple prayer right now. And you might not be a Christian, or you might have walked with Jesus for a long time, but this very simple prayer is what we want to pray right now in this moment. God, would you just speak to me? Let me hear from you. And God, would it change me? That only happens because God does that. So would you just ask God if he would, if he would do that right now? Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you to talk to me. I need you to speak to me, and I need you to speak through me. God, we need to hear from you, and not just be hearers like your word says, but God, let this work do its, let this word do its work in us, God, that we'd be transformed more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we pray these things in your powerful name. I want you to be made much of. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, for many of us, when we get into this conversation about engaging with the culture, interacting with the culture, it's not a very comfortable conversation for us. We can feel kind of intimidated. It can feel kind of clunky. It can feel kind of clumsy for us because we're not really sure, well, how exactly it does my faith and, and politics, how is that supposed to work? Or how, how does my faith and, and economics work together? How, what, is, what does my faith have to do with sexuality or relationships that I have? How in the world does all that stuff kind of come together? We're, we're not really comfortable with it because we don't fully understand how it's even supposed to work together. You might have the kind of posture where like, well, you know, I don't hear Jesus talking about it, so why are we talking about it? Uh, and I get all of those tensions, and I have felt some of those tensions very acutely myself at times. Um, when people write uh, historically about Christians and the way that they try to engage with cultures or the different approaches that they have or postures that they've taken, there's, there's kind of four main ones uh, that, that they will write about when it comes to our involvement and culture. The first uh, would be like a Christ against 
culture. And this is basically a perspective or a posture uh, that takes a, a kind of a separation from or at least like a fortified position against the world. And the basic task of the church is this vigilant preservation uh, against the world. And the basic threat to the church is the destructive character of the larger culture. And the, the problem with that is that when we see Jesus, like we're looking at Jesus through, this, through the book of John, when we see Jesus uh, is that God doesn't move away from the world with this kind of like disgusted hostility. We see him incarnate or enter into and actually move into the world with redemptive love. Uh, another perspective is that there's that's Christ of culture, and it kind of has this kind of syncretism or like accommodation of the world. Like you, you really can't see where the church uh, ends and culture begins, and it just kind of is all together. And the basic posture is that, look, we really don't want to kind of ruffle feathers in the culture. We just kind of want to go along with what the culture is doing. And the problem with that is that it, lock, it lacks the prophetic voice that God has given the church to speak out into the world of how the world ought to be under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Uh, there's another perspective that, that, that's like Christ above culture. And, and, and this perspective holds that for our neighbors that think differently, they're not viewed as people to be loved, but actually like a, a, a group to be defeated, which is really antithetical to the call that God has given on us, the call of Christ to love our enemies and to lay our lives down for their good. The, the fourth perspective, and I, and I believe this is the perspective, this is the vision that redemption would hold to, is Christ transforming culture, where the goal of the church is to extend the rule and reign of Jesus into all of life, which is why you see on banners and on t-shirts and kind of everywhere that when we say all of life is all for Jesus, it's a comprehensive gospel, this good news that proclaims and displays that Jesus is Lord of all. Which is why I started with that passage in Colossians. I believe that's what it's teaching. That Christ is before creation and he's over all creation. He's redeeming creation and he is the point and praise of all creation. It doesn't really feel appropriate for us to have this majestic and high view of Jesus, which we do. He's the headline of every story. He's the point of everything. He is the one who is magnified and lifted up in everything we do and say. He's the, he's the highest uh, calling of every vocation. It doesn't feel appropriate to have such a majestic view of Jesus and to keep him out of these large portions of culture and our world and not submit those things to his beauty and his wisdom and his ways and his rule. Now, when we're talking about culture, culture is not inherently evil, but what we do with it can be. When we're talking about culture, we're talking about uh, beliefs, behaviors, values, language, intellectual achievement, artistic expression, an entire way of life of a particular group of people. It comes from a Latin word that means to plow or to Till uh, and in fact, it's where we get the the idea where when ma when God sets man and woman in the garden, he he tells them to cultivate, to subdue creation. In essence, he calls them to be 
culture makers. And if you know the biblical story, you know that sin entered in, rebellion entered in, distorted all of that. So Jesus came, incarnated, entered into our world to bring ultimate renewal and restoration of all things, bringing his kingdom, which will be fully realized at the return of Jesus. So we, as the followers of Jesus, we are now the walking around embodiment of Christ carrying forward the mandate that God gave to the man and woman when he put them in the garden. To quote N.T. Wright, he says, we are image bearers of God who live at like a 45 degree angle to mirror God and to project his goodness back into the world. Let me read from Genesis 1 to tell you what I'm talking about. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. We're created in the image of God so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. My little kid's Bible says, have babies. Uh, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Nancy Pierce would say it this way, the phrase be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. So build families and churches and schools and cities and governments and laws. And that second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops and build bridges and design computers and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create culture. So that kind of sets the groundwork for why we're even talking about any of this stuff. Why, why do we even wade into something like this? Because we believe it's what God has set for his church. And we, we live in a world that says, well, you, you come from nowhere and you belong to no one but yourself. But Christians, we believe that we come from someone and we belong to someone And we have value and we have purpose and we live in this holistic story of what God has done, of what he is doing and what he will one day complete. Okay, so how do we live in a world? How do we operate in a culture that's actively against this story? I want to put a phrase, hopefully we have this phrase we can put on the screen. Um, and this, if you just kind of black out for the rest of the morning, this is the kind of the thesis of, of how I believe that we um, engage in a countercultural way. We are a faithful. That word faithful, it means that we will pass the test of what is true. There's an integrity to us as a people. We're, we're a faithful people who we do what we've been given to do. We do what we're designed by God to do. We're a faithful witness. That word witness means that we're actually present to an event, right? So like, I, I don't know if this is the best illustration. I used it last hour. I couldn't think of anything new. But if you witness a car accident, right? You see a car accident, you stick around for the, to talk to the police officer so that you can tell what was there. Well, if you weren't there, if you just drove by after it happened, and you're like, well, here's what I thought happened. You're not a faithful witness. You're not a very good witness. So we, witnessing and means that we have to be present. 
Which means we have to be in the places of culture if we're going to be a faithful witness in the culture. We have to be a faithful witness of the good news of Jesus. That's the gospel, the, the complete gospel. A people who are resolved in the truth of God's word and God's ways. The truth matters. And who are radical in their love for one another and their neighbor. Almost like head-scratching love. I don't understand why they're loving in that way. I don't understand why they're giving of themselves in that way. That is, there's a radical, almost kind of like misunderstood by the world love uh, that we have. And I believe that's what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 5. So you should be there if you're not sure where Matthew is in the Bible. If you open your Bible, there's an Old Testament, New Testament. Matthew's right at the beginning of the New Testament there. Matthew chapter 5, where he shows us what he has in mind with how we should show up in the world. These sections known, are known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's where Jesus is looking at his followers and he's saying, I'm a king and I have a kingdom. And, and this is what my community is to be about. This is what my community is supposed to look like. This is our cause and this is our culture. Here's our vision and here's our values. Here's where I'm calling you to go and here's how you're going to be along the way. And this morning, I want to give us um, a pattern and a posture or a model and a mode for how we counter culture. And we see that right here in Matthew chapter 5. The pattern is salt and light. And then the, pasture, the, the, the posture that we're going to see in a, in a second is grace and truth. The, the, the model is salt and light. The mode is grace and truth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says this, You are the salt of the earth. This is Jesus talking. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If, you, if you're not salty as salt, you're not effective is what he's saying there. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching what a countercultural community Uh, meaning a community that embodies the teachings and the life of Jesus looks like. If you read through the sermon, we don't have time to do it this morning, but if you've never read it, I would really encourage you. But there's several places where he'll say things like, well, you've heard it said, well, I say. So Jesus is coming in like, like the transformational force that he is and turning things upside down. He's, in essence, giving the ethic for the way in which Jesus' followers are going to live, the marks of those who inhabit and inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of times, if you've heard this teaching on salt and light, uh, it kind of gets boiled down to this kind of vanilla, moralistic way of thinking about how we engage in culture. Like, okay, Jesus is saying we just kind of need to be out there and just be nice people. And if that's the way that you interpret this, if that's the way that you take this, then it really lacks the 
the vision and the passion for cultural engagement that Jesus truly has. So it makes sense that you would feel uneasy in the way that you step into this. There's a pastor, his name is John Tyson. When he talks about this, he uses the term kingdom embodiment. Meaning what Jesus is preaching here, because he preaches through these, these beatitudes, and, and he's saying when the Holy Spirit starts to produce these things in the life of a believer, and they start to show up in our lives, they actually embody the rule and the reign of Jesus in the places that God has you in the world. Now, when first century hearers would have heard Jesus talking like this about salt and light, they, they would have just, they would not have thought like, oh, he's just saying we just need to be really nice people wherever we are, like in our workplace and at school and in our neighborhoods and things like that. No, they would have understood this to mean he's talking about radical allegiance to him in a culture of compromise, and he's calling us to boundary-crossing mission to people who are not normally on the radar of religious elite. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's talking about something very potent, very valuable. In fact, uh, oftentimes Roman soldiers would be paid in salt. So if you've ever heard that phrase, he's not worth his salt, uh, it, it's referring to a soldier who didn't operate or work up to or live up to the potential of what that payment was. It's, it, salt is used, uh, uh, it was a mark of friendship at a meal. It's used in different covenants in the Old Testament. It's very valuable, very meaning. But what he's saying there is for those of you who follow me and take on my way of living and submit to my rule and my reign in your life, I want to transfer my character. I'm going to transfer my authority to you as you go into the world into to culture, and I want you to act like how I would act. I want you to talk how I would talk. I want you to think how I would think. I want you to love what I would love. I want you to hate what I would hate. He's giving us the way to make his personality and his values known or manifest in the places and the people in your world that you would bring kind of a flavor as a potent and provocative agent of the kingdom of God into the world. He's saying the proper way to represent me, to transform the culture in the world, it's when you take on the personality of Jesus and take on the characteristics of the kingdom, when you love like I love, that's how the world knows who Jesus is. When you bring out the flavor of the kingdom as salt. And so for us as a church, if we start just with the pattern of saltiness, it kind of rearranges our thinking. A lot of times we, we think in terms of maybe like kind of self-preservation or how do we gather as many people as we can to a moment. What Jesus is saying is, look, no, it's how potent you are out there. The second thing that he calls us to be is light. You are collectively, you are light of the world. Now, when he's talking about light, he's talking about lamps that are very small. They didn't put out a whole lot of light. And so the only way that a light would be effective is if it went to a dark place. If I had a small, like, tea light candle that I put on the podium here and lit it right now, it really would be 
kind of inconsequential. It wouldn't make that much sense. But if all the lights went out, if all the power went out, and this room was pitch black, and I had a little candle here, it would be extremely significant because it's the only source of light in a place of extreme darkness. And so when Jesus is talking about light, he's saying, look, if you want to be the most effective light, you need to go to the darkest places. So if, if salt is about our potent practice of being a disciple of Jesus, light is about the mission. How do I take Jesus to the places and to the people who, who need it most? When Jesus is talking to these people, this group of people are completely obsessed with the Roman Empire and the Roman government. They were oppressing this people. They didn't have much freedom. And, and, and they just could not wait for the Messiah to come in as kind of this political leader who would overthrow the government and then finally set up the rule and reign where these people would rise to power. Which is why Jesus was kind of a letdown to most people because he didn't show up the way that they thought he was going to show up. He didn't show up with this massive political campaign. He didn't show up with this super powerful army. He shows up and he starts going to all the people that you would never go and talk to. He goes and he, and he shows up to all those who are on the outsiders and the outcasts. He goes and he shows up to all the least and the last and the lost. And the people are like, well, why are you spending time with them? Why? The, the religious elites of this day, this is why they were so just frustrated with Jesus. Because they're like, if you're going to spend time with anybody, you should spend time with us. If there's ever going to be a Messiah who rises to power, he needs to spend time with the powerful people. But that was not the way that Jesus did it. And so what Jesus is saying, look, I'm looking for people who are going to bring the flavor, what is so good about me, and the light that leads and guides people to freedom in Christ. I'm looking for people who are going to take that to those who need it most. And so the question for us as a church is, where are the places in our city? Where are the places in our town? Where are the places in our culture that other people don't want to go to? Because that's where Jesus wants to go. Where are the people that most don't want to go to or be with? Because that's who Jesus wants to be with. Who around us is struggling with the deepest darkness? How do we bring the gospel to them? Because that's the epicenter of where Jesus wants to be. He's talking about everyday faithfulness in what God has for us and radical mission to bring love and light. That's what it means to be Jesus in our culture and in our world. And we have to be intentional about that every day. We're all the same. Every day, each and every one of us, we wake up and as soon as our feet hit the ground, we have a full list of things that we have to do in that day. And sometimes it starts before, that's why we won't get our feet out of bed, because the list is just dominating us. What do we have to do? What do we have to do? And I just want to invite you into a different way of thinking. Not tomorrow, because it's Labor Day. I know you won't take it serious, but maybe Tuesday, if you remember. And maybe the very first question is, okay, Jesus, what do you have for me to do today? I got a whole list of things. I'm going to set that list aside. Jesus, you write the list. Now, you still got to take your kids to school and go to work and do all that stuff. So I'm not giving permission to stop. But, but Jesus, what do you have for me today? Where can I be salt? Where can I be light today? You went to scandalous places. What are the scandalous places you're calling me to? You went to scandalous people. What are the scandalous people you're calling me to? Where, who are the places? Who are the people? Where are the places that need the most salt, the flavor of the kingdom today? and need the most light, who are stuck in darkness today. 
Because we do not counter culture by simply living out a marginally moral but secularly influenced safe life. Because Jesus calls us to radical mission and he's saying, who's with me? Who's going to live like I lived? Who's going to live out what I've taught? And we do this in the posture of grace and truth. So if the pattern is salt and light, the posture is grace and truth. Um, we've been looking through the book of John and what I uh, love about John and what I have loved about John is all the different ways that he's describing and trying to tell us who Jesus is. It's not an easy thing. Um, but I think John does it really well even at the beginning of, uh, of the book of John. He says in John chapter 1, the word, this is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John's trying to paint this picture of the God-man Jesus. And he gives us these two Words, these two realities, grace and truth, two things that we tend to think are kind of opposites. There, there's radical love, and we know the radical love people, and then we know the, the faithfulness to what is true people. Um, but they're not the same people. But John is saying, well, actually, they beautifully co-mingle in the person of Jesus. And, and, and as his followers, you're called to be the same. I want to start with the reality of grace. Because Jesus teaches us if we're going to counter culture or be faithful witnesses, um, we're not going to be harshly critical. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the same measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, we've got to be real clear here because Jesus is not dismissing the, the rule of law or courts. He's not saying that we aren't supposed to be discerning about the morality of people's words and deeds because Jesus calls people out all the time. He calls people's names. He, he, he makes distinctions on what you should do and what you shouldn't do. So he's not saying that. He's not saying get rid of moral judgment or your capacity to discern He's not saying don't use your judgment. He's saying don't be judgmental. And there is a difference. The, the Apostle Paul and James, who's the brother of Jesus, actually pick up on this and they kind of riff on this idea a little bit. And, and Paul in Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? Some versions say, why do you despise them? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind and, and not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. James says it this way, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, why then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? 
James said, don't speak evil against them. Paul says, don't, don't despise them. As Christians, we don't despise, we don't speak evil to each other because our words are not meant to be destructive but con- constructive, to, to, to not to tear down but to build up. John Stott says it this way. He says, we are not to be fault finders that are negative and destructive towards other people who enjoy actively speaking out the failings of others. They are ungenerous towards the mistakes of others. Looking at you, Facebook and Twitter. And the reason is, is because you are not the judge. You are actually among the judged. That's the idea. Jesus is not inviting you into helping him judge others as if he's like missing something, as if there's some kind of insight you have that he doesn't. We're not qualified because we can't see what Jesus sees in our brothers and sisters and we can't do what what he can do in their lives. So, So we really need to slow our roll when it comes to judging other people because we are not qualified to do it. And I realize that our culture grooms us to go online and rage against anybody that we disagree with because it kind of provides to us a type of righteousness feeling where we can point out the faults of others but we don't have to deal with our own, which is really convenient. Because it's a huge hassle to have to deal with my own unrighteousness. It's a lot better feeling for me to just simply point out what's wrong with others. But Jesus is like, look, that's not going to really work out because you are a mess. Listen to how he says it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus was pretty funny when he preached, I think. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is saying in effect, look, all that critical energy that you have, that kind of ability that you have to point out uh, the specks, redirect that energy. Stop all the speck searching and deal with the tree that's hanging out of your eyeball. The assumption is what Jesus is telling us, you're not perfect. This room is a a forest of tree eyeballs. And I know it's becoming increasingly more popular to deconstruct Christianity. And the number one dart being thrown is they're a bunch of hypocrites. And you know what? That's true. But so are you. And we are all a mess. But, but Jesus is not building a community that dismisses and destroys and criticizes. So let's just admit, okay, there's specks and there's logs everywhere. Let's not start with harsh criticism. But what he's calling us to is humble self-reflection. He's not building a church built on harsh criticism, but but rather one of humble self-reflection, one that says, how am I creating or how am I contributing to the problem? How how could I see this better from another vantage point? How can I be on the solution side of what I'm seeing wrong in the the world? How can I be a, a person of grace? If you're a truth person, you're getting real nervous right now, but don't worry, we got time, we're gonna squeeze in the truth thing, it's coming. 
Because he's not saying, just let everybody do whatever it is that they want to do. Just let them live their own truth. No, no, no. We're supposed to deal with the issues of other people. We're just supposed to deal with our own first. The big idea here is that rather than being critical, we will be known for humble introspection. And when we do, we're going to see the logs in our own eyes, and we're going to realize how much grace and forgiveness has been given us. And in turn, we who have been forgiven much will love much. And we'll, we'll realize, you know what? Maybe I need to stop so much time and energy attacking, and maybe I just need to ask God to change me. Maybe instead of all the time I spend posting, I should spend praying. What would that be like? What would that be like if, if, if I just said, you know what, before I post this thing, I'm going to commit at least 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, to praying about it first. Now, if you're still one of the people who are like posting what you ate, maybe you don't have to do that. But like, Before I post what I'm so angry about, what's so wrong, who's so wrong, why don't, I take a, why don't I take a step back and just say, God, I'm really spun up about this right now. I'm going to cast my anxiety and my care to you, and, and I'm going to commit this to pray before I post. Rather than be a harsh critic, maybe I can start with humbly, confidently praying to a God who can actually heal the broken things in me and in the world around me. We have the ability to be gracious. It's a good thing to be a people of grace, but yet it doesn't mean that we just sit back and we tell everyone, you get to do whatever you want to do, because Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't like, hey, whatever is true for you is just true. That's what it is. Jesus doesn't talk like that. We're a people of grace and we're a people of truth. God loves us and so he's very clear to us about, about us and about the world that we're in. We have a, a phrase that we use on our staff that clarity is kindness. So the more clear you are, the kinder it is. Well, Jesus, Jesus is love. There is no more loving person than Jesus. And so he's, he's radically clear with who we are. And so at the end of this sermon here, um, he, he presents us with these warnings. And these warnings are like two paths. And, and he talks about the exclusivity of his truth, which I know is not very popular, and how we, are his people, are a people of grace and his exclusive truth. Look at verse 13. He says this. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that that, read, that leads to life and only a few find it. He's talking about a reality in life that there really are only two paths. One of them is really broad. And on that path, whatever you want to believe and whatever you want to bring with you, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to think, whatever you want to haul with you on this path, there's room for it on this path because it's wide and it leads to death. There's a different gate, smaller gate, narrow gate, smaller path, much more difficult, much more narrow. And there's a lot of you that you're going to have to leave behind. There's a lot of you that can't fit on this path, like your rebellion, 
like your self-absorption, like your arrogance, the critical spirit, all that stuff, not going to fit on this road. And that road's not a very popular road, but that's the countercultural road, meaning people will not understand you and they will judge you, but that's the road that leads to life. It's like this. I was talking to Matt about this yesterday. I was saying, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you go to the doctor and the doctor says to you, listen, your only, your only way to live is for you to stop drinking. Uh, it's killing your liver. It's killing your organs. There's toxins in your body. The only way for you to live uh, is for you to completely stop drinking. Now, you're not going to leave that office and be like, what a narrow-minded, hate-monger, bigoted doctor that guy is. No, you didn't know. Why don't you talk like that? Because it's true. Because it's true, and he's trying to save your life. I mean, you might, you say, well, he could at least, like, give me another option of other things to drink. I mean, I don't think I have to cut it out completely. He's like, no, you will die if you do not listen to the physician. And if what we tell the world about their sin and rebellion and how that penalty for sin is death and hell, but there is salvation found only in the person of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, not by works that you can do, but by his grace through repentance and faith, it's not harmful, it's not hateful because it's true. And we believe that it is, and we believe it's what saves your life and what leads you in abundant life in this life and in eternity. And if the world is really broken and dying, we need to listen to the only physician that can really heal us. Because Jesus is the only cure. His ways are the ways that lead to true life. And how do we, you just never know. The Christian ethic that we're going to talk about in these different topics, it might just be the lifeline that someone is looking for to save them out of the prison that they are in. You just don't know. It's the most kind thing that we could do. Jesus is not cruel. When Jesus brings truth, it's not cruelty because he gives his life. He'll give up everything. I mean, down to the last bit of clothing that he has as he dies is being gambled over. He gives everything, his whole life, on purpose for us. The sin that we see in this world, these things that we're going to be talking about in this series and our culture is serious. And the most loving thing that we can do is to tell of a way that leads to life. But it is narrow. There is a narrow gate and a narrow road. Jesus ends the sermon by telling us, church, there's going to be a testing in all of this. There's going to be an examination of the fruit that grows out of us. Is it fruit that is full of grace and truth? Because we have a message of grace and love and truth, which should lead us to be a people full of grace and love speaking truth. And just like we need the the spirit of God to enter into the kingdom of God, we are going to need an outpouring of the spirit of God on us to be faithful witnesses, resolved in truth and radical in love. And yes, we know we have logs in our eyes, but we have a gracious God who wants to care for us. So we come humbly and confident to him so that we can be a counter-cultural force for good 
for the fame of Jesus. Let's pray that he would do that for us. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word this morning. And God, there's, there's just so much that's in this topic and in these topics. And we confess the complexity. God, we, we, con- we confess, uh, God, just the messiness of it. God, we confess our own inadequacy. But God, we want to be found faithful. We want to walk humbly in what you have given us. God, we want to love our neighbor, and God, we want to show how much you love the world. And so, God, I pray as a church that we would, we would sit with this, God, that your word would find fertile soil and not be choked out um, by the thorns of our arrogance or our, our pride or our preferences or our opinions or the exceptions that we have, God, to, to what you're calling us to. God, that we might ask questions like, what is robbing us of opportunity to be salt and light? What's making us irre- irrelevant as salt and light? Is it, our, is it our cynicism, God? Would you convict us of that, God? Is it, our, is it our syncretism? Is it because, God, we look so much like the world, we have no witness to the world? God, is it our, is it our apathy? Is it our self-absorption or self-focus? We're just so focused on ourselves that we're not even paying attention to what's happening in the culture. God, whatever it is, God, would you, would you show it to us? God, would we turn from it? Would we repent, God? And would we step into Jesus what you are so graciously inviting us into? We love you. It's in your powerful, powerful name we ask these things. Amen.